Welcome back to Crimes and Closets. This is Beth coming at you from my closet in North Carolina. This is Christy in my closet in St. Louis. And I just took a sip of my drink. I don't know why I took it so, like, as we were starting. I almost couldn't even get out where I was. Because I was in the middle of a drink. Christy's in her closet drinking wine. I am totally drinking wine out of my Crimes and Closets wine glass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. And everyone should go and buy a Crimes and Closets mug. Mm, yes. For, uh, yes. Go because and get them. For sale. So come and get one because they're very limited quantities. And when we sell out, they're gone. And we don't know if we're going to bring them back. Yeah. So yes. go get one. Yeah. And I have to clarify something that I said in our last episode when I was talking about Days of Our Lives because. I love Days of Our Lives, and I grew up watching it, and I said Jennifer Aniston's dad was Stefano in Days of Our Lives, and he wasn't. He was Victor Caracas on Days of Our Lives. So don't come at me, okay? I know I messed up and made a mistake. His name is John Aniston, and he was Victor, not Stefano. Okay. I like how that's the fact that we had to correct. <laughs> Why? What fact are you correcting? No, I'm just talking about like, um, just not having to go back and being like, oh, I was wrong about this on this case, which I'm sure there's plenty of things that we have gotten wrong. And even if it's a small little thing, but it's like, no, let's make sure that everyone knows that we know that he wasn't Stefano. (laughs) (laughs) Let's make sure everyone knows that Beth knows she made a mistake about Days of Our Lives. I had siblings that watched Days of Our Lives. I know they're going to come at me about this. Don't do it. I made a mistake. Stop texting. Move on. Move on. Move on. (laughs) Okay. Yes. And we're moving on to our next case. But stay tuned for the end at the end of this one because we are going to do our products. We're going to highlight some products from our closets. So don't don't leave us at the end. Closet product. We need to come up with a theme song for that. Okay. I'll work on that for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe in 2021. Okay. 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 So I hope that everybody has a drink in your crimes and closets mug. Mm -hmm. Because you are going to have to buckle in for this case. There's a lot of information here. I feel like I'm going to be whipping through some things super quick. So I just want everybody to hold on to my pants. I just was going (laughs) to. Say that, as Christy says, hold on to your pants <laughs> because we don't want those falling off in the middle of a podcast <laughs> as they do, you know. So, yes, do what you need to do to stay okay. tuned, to stay with right. me because it's a lot. Hold it on. Hold it. Hold on to them. Just put a little notch in the belt. I am going to tell you the story today of Joan Robinson Hill. Okay. Huh. Okay. This is a Texas story. Mm. You know, that's my favorite. Texas. <laughs> I just love talking about my people from Texas. Okay. So Joan, who is the, you know, main character in our little story here, she was born mm. in February of 1931. 1931. Taking you way back in Fort Worth, Texas. She was born to an unwed, an unwed mother 
who immediately placed her for adoption. Okay. Because this was the 30s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what they had to do back then. And was sent to the Edna Gladney home in Fort Worth. At one month old, she was adopted by a couple who had been unable to get pregnant. And their names were Davis Ashton Robinson, who goes by the name of Ash. Okay. So Ash Robinson is dad and Rhea Robinson, which is his wife. So Joan became Joan Olive Robinson. And this couple that had adopted her were absolutely in love with her. She was the best thing that ever happened to them. They were absolutely thrilled to have this beautiful baby girl. The parents, Ash and Rhea, were very wealthy. In fact, they had an empire in Texas. Ash oh, wow, an empire. Very, an empire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a very successful oil tycoon in Houston. Oh. So this is the 30s. This is Texas. He's an oil mm. tycoon. So they lived a very, very luxurious lifestyle. And Joan became their princess. She was okay. their only daughter. She was something that they had sought after. So she was put on this pedestal. They were very close, and she was especially close with her father, Ash. So Joan loved horses, and she actually began riding at the age of three. Hmm. By And she was very good at it. So by the age of five, she won her first ribbon. By the age of seven, she was regularly competing and gaining success, and she actually would win first or second place in every event that she entered. Hmm. So she was very talented, very talented equestrian. So she continued this throughout her middle school and high school. And after high school, she went to Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. (gasps) What? So she wasn't the best student, you know, Mm. because girls in the 50s didn't really have to be smart. Um, But she was a very well-known member of the higher society in her college, and she continued with her horse riding, competing, and things like that. And so this is the 50s by then. She's blonde. She's rich. She's kind of famous in the equestrian circle. And so she does pretty well in college. She's super well-known. Her parents, her dad, leased a suite of rooms in a nearby hotel so a hotel that was near her college so that he and his wife could visit her frequently Uh college oh lease a suite of hotels so that they can come and see her in Missouri so okay Okay. like so he could just come whenever he wanted to Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it wasn't like like he just went it's like he just uh, made a uh, reservation this week. No, no, he, he leased them. Like he rented them for long term, and oh, they were like, okay. His. "Okay, commitment." So, yeah, helicopter. So during the time that he that Joan was in college, she actually acted in several of the college productions and was approached by a talent scout, a Hollywood talent scout, who offered her screen tests, but her daddy wouldn't let her. Mm. Because he said that at that time, he believed that Hollywood was predatory to young girls. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) This is the 50s. Okay. So while Joan was in college, she got married twice. 
two times in college before she was 20. Oh, uh, neither one of uh-huh, neither one of her marriages lasted more than six months. Um, she married a naval pilot by the name of Spike Benton, and then she also married a childhood friend named Cecil Burglass, who was also a New Orleans attorney. But those marriages ended very quickly. Daddy didn't like it, so for whatever reason, they didn't last. Also during this time, between the 1950s and 60s, Joan continued to be a competitive equestrian. Equestrian? Equestrian? Equestrian. I don't know. Equestitarian. She rode horses and won as many as 500 trophies. And she had a very famous horse that she called Beloved Belinda. Beloved Belinda. That was the name of her horse. And when she retired her horse, actually, in the late 1950s, it made national headlines. Sports Illustrated covered this woman. Oh, whoa. 500 trophies. She was super, super, like, Texas famous for her horse riding. Hmm. She was a really big deal. Okay. In 1957, Joan met and married a a man by the name of John Hill. John was a leading plastic surgeon in Houston, Texas. So they were both 26 years old. So we have two beautiful, successful people who have money and meet and get married. So it's like a little Texan fairy tale. Gag, right? Okay. John John Robert Hill, a little bit about her, her new husband here, was born in 1931 in Texas. He was the middle child of a nice family. At a very young age, he developed a love for music. And he was super talented. He was a super talented musician. He played piano, trombone, tuba, the flute, and the recorder. Oh, oh legit. Yeah, the recorder. www.com nightmare. Isn't that all on all of our lists then? I mean, can we all put that on the resume? I'll play the recorder, John. Okay. He studied liberal arts at Abilene Christian College in Abilene, Texas, and he actually graduated summa cum laude. Mm. So his mother, after he graduated, was like, John, musicians don't make any money. So she pushed pushed him to go into the medical field. So we went to medical school at Baylor College in Houston. At the time that he graduated in the 1950s, there was like a flood of doctors. So a, a bunch of people were going to medical school. It was like a the thing to do back then, especially for the socially elite that had the money to do that. So John decided that he was not going to become just a regular doctor. He was going to be a plastic surgeon because at the time in Houston, there were only 10 certified plastic surgeons. Mm. So he's like, this is a new market. I can break into this. There's not very many and I can make money. And at the same time that he was doing all of this plastic surgery stuff, he also continued to pursue his passion music. He was involved in several bands and he gave recitals and lessons. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you want to buy tickets to a recorder recital, (laughs) (laughs) 
I go, I go for free in my own living room. <laughs> same, same. Okay. So in 1957, Joan and John were married. And they lived on Joan's parents' property. So remember, he is a big, her daddy, Ash, is a big oil tycoon. So he has a bunch of land. And he gladly, you know, lets them move on to his property and start their life so that they can establish themselves. They became a regular part of Houston's wealthy social scene and they were seen as a power couple. I mean, they mm. were young, they were beautiful. Here she is this blonde equestrian heiress and she has this handsome successful plastic surgeon husband, so they really were seen as like the people to be, right? But they really led different lives. Joan had her horses, which was her passion, and John had his medical practice and his music. So we will find out what they do with their separate lives just after this break. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Okay, we're back. So this brings us to 1960. Our power couple, Joan and John, had a son. And they named him Robert Ashton Hill. And he was nicknamed Boot. It's very Texas. Don't hate it. It's very Texas. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not hating it. I had a friend in college and his name was Boots, but it wasn't because his name was Robert Ashton Hill. <laughs> I read something somewhere that it was named after Boot Hill Cemetery or Boot Hill Graveyard, which is like, a, I don't know, I did not like delve into it because I didn't know if it was true. But like, so his last name is Hill and the graveyard is called Boot Hill. And so somehow yes. he got this nickname Boot, Boot Hill. I don't know. So let's talk about this kid is named after a freaking cemetery. Yeah. No, why would you do that? Anyway, move Super on. Super happy. Super happy. That's <laughs> what little tycoons do. I don't know. Okay. So Joan had, after she just after she had had Boot, she had just retired her horse, beloved Belinda, and so she was really no longer competing in the equestrian realm. So she decided that she wanted to breed horses and have a riding school. So naturally, her dad, Ash, bought her a farm. <laughs> you know, Clearly. that's what we do. And this farm opened in 1963 and was called Chatsworth Farm. And I think this farm is still open in Texas. Oh. And it has animals, like live animals that you can still go and like be on this farm. Hmm. So in 1965, John and Joan, who remember were living on her parents' estate, finally bought their own home, which was very nearby their parent, her parents' estate. It was not a home. 
It was the freaking mansion, okay? It was this huge colonial-style southern Texas estate. And John decides that when they move into this home, he needs a music room in the house. So he needs his own room in the house where he can play his music and do his passion. And so in 1968, he builds one. This room is estimated to have cost around $100,000. Oh, and wow, in 1968, that's a lot of money then. Do you want to guess how much it is? No. It's over $750,000. Three yeah. quarters of a million dollars for a music room. This is his mm. hobby. Okay, he's right. he's a doctor. This is just his hobby. He has a marble fireplace, over 100 speakers, multiple sound systems, ridiculously expensive instruments of all kinds, gold-plated recorders. I don't know. But, <laughs> you know. All kinds of money he spent in this room. So problems start to arise in the marriage, obviously, because the two of them are just completely living different lives. And Joan actually tells her friend, friends that this music room is like a source of contention for them because it's just a financially really stupid decision. It's very extravagant. It's not something she agrees with. And Joan says that John, he doesn't really care. He doesn't really care what she has to say about it. He doesn't really care about her or their marriage. He doesn't care about their son, Boot. He only cares about his music and his job in this stupid music room, right? Okay. It's not the music. Mm-hmm. It's not the music, Joan. It's not the music room. <laughs> because John was actually having an affair. Yeah, man. John had been sleeping with a divorced mother of three named Anne Kurth. He and Anne met because her sons went to summer camp with Boot. Yeah. No, doesn't like, it? Same her, age then? Like somebody's Yeah, some of her kids were the same age as Boot, so like they went to the same summer camp. It reminds me of the band camp. One time a band camp. <laughs> Anyway, so one day in 1968, jo Joan comes home from a horse show, and she found a note from John saying that he was leaving her because things were not mm. good between them. So Joan tried to call John at his office, and he completely ignored her. Like, yeah. totally would not answer her phone calls, would not call her back, and it turned out that he was actually living with his mistress, Anne. So he serves Joan with divorce papers. Joan is heartbroken. She wants to work out their marriage. Guess who she calls? Her daddy. Mm -hmm. She calls her daddy. <laughs> so Ash Robinson, Joan's dad, goes to see John. And he basically threatens him. And he says... I have a PI investigating you. I know what you're up to. If you go through with the divorce, I'm going to drag you through the mud. I'm going to drag Anne Kurth, your mistress, through the mud. You'll get nothing. We will countersue, you know, based on your infidelity. Ash was a powerful man, right? Mm. So John is like, I'm going to lose my money. I'm going to lose my kid. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my music room. So John withdrew his petition for divorce and moves back in with Joan. Isn't that so sad? 
It's, it is very sad. Cause that's what I was thinking. Like, why would you want to live that way? Like, why do you like want your husband back if it's because he didn't want to be threatened by your father? <laughs> yeah. Like your Texan daddy just blackmailed him, this man into loving you. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. no. So sad. However, you can't turn a hoe into a husband. So John, although he comes back, he keeps his apartment outside of his house and he continues seeing Anne. So at this point, Anne is like, why are you going back with your wife? You're supposed to be with me. We were supposed to have a family. So she's putting pressure on him. She doesn't want him to spend time at home. She doesn't want him to stay with his wife, period. Meanwhile, he's getting the pressure from Joan, his wife, and from her father to make their marriage work. So he is just like torn in all kinds of different directions. So he is a plastic surgeon, remember. So he constantly is getting paged away. He's always very distant. You know, like he comes home, he does what he has to do as a father, but like he's not really invested in the marriage, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So that brings us to March of 1969. Joan had some friends in town for a long weekend. So she had invited some people over to their estate to stay with them for the long weekend. John gets paged away, paged away, air quotes. Mm -hmm. And he comes home and he's like, I'm so sorry that I keep getting paged away. I brought you some pastries for you and your friend. And Joan, I brought you your favorite pastry and I want you to eat this one because I bought it for you. So they're Would like, he okay, do that pastry? super sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yep, stay tuned. <laughs> so they eat the pastries. They're like super nice. So that night they're hanging out in the music room and John is listening to music in the music room and Joan is playing cards with her friend. So they're all in the same room, but this is like a huge, massive room, right? So she starts confiding in her friends that she knows that Joan has his own, or that John has his own apartment, that he's seeing another woman, that he's been lying to her, that he's not invested in the marriage. And she's like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm calling an attorney. He's making a fool out of me. I'm not doing this anymore. Blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, John is in the room, like over off into the corner playing his piano or whatever. And so the friends are like, this is uncomfortable, right? Yeah. So (laughs) she's like, right. So she's like, he's going to lose his family. He's going to lose money, like everything he loves. He's going to lose it. And they're like, could you please quiet down a little bit? Cause he's listening to you and we feel weird. Right. Mm. So John comes over and he puts on a record and he asks Joan to dance. So of course the friends are like, Okay, bye. <laughs> like, we're going to bed. This is so weird. So they do. They leave them there to go to bed. The next day, Joan doesn't get up for breakfast. She doesn't get up for lunch. So later in the afternoon, they go to check her friends who are staying at her house, remember, for the weekend, go to check on her. And she is like super sick. She's throwing up. She can't get out of bed. And so they're like, what do you need? What can we do? What can we help you with? And she's like, it's fine. You know, John is giving me medicine. He's been giving me shots. 
He's taking care of me. I'm going to be okay. And she's like, by the way, I'm so sorry for what I said last night. Like, John and I, we had such a good night together. He said things I've never heard him say before. He's made me very happy. I think we're going to be okay. So they're like, well, Hmm. good. That's great. You know, if you need anything, let us know. So she stays in bed for the rest of the weekend. She's like super sick. She cannot stop throwing up, like just has come down with something. She cannot get out of bed. So that Monday morning, when the trip is over, her friends leave. John tells everyone he's going to take care of her and, you know, I'll update you on how she's doing. So on Tuesday, March 18th, John leaves to go to work and he tells their maid not to disturb Joan. He's like, I've taken care of everything. I know she's been super, super sick all weekend, but like I've taken care of her. I've given her everything she needs. Don't disturb her. Don't go in. Well, the maid is like, I'm going in there. (laughs) Like, screw you, John. I'm going in. So she goes in and she finds Joan barely conscious, laying in her own feces Mm. in the bed. So she gets her up, she takes her to the bathroom, she tries to clean her up, change her nightgown, change the sheets, give her a bath, and she notices that while she's trying to, like, help her, that Joan's face is actually turning blue. So she's, like, struggling to breathe almost, like, she is super, super sick. So she, like, frantically tries to call John. She can't get a hold of him at work. She frantically tries to call Joan's parents. She can't get a hold of them. But then, like, a couple minutes later, Joan's mom, Rhea, stops by the house because she hasn't heard from Joan for a couple days, and she just wants to check on her to see if she's okay. And, you know, her mom is like, oh, my gosh, we're totally taking her to the hospital. Like, she is super, super sick. So John comes home, and John is like, okay, you know, let me, I'll take care of it. It's fine. They're like, no, dude, we're taking her to the hospital. Like she is so sick. So instead of calling an ambulance, John decides to drive her himself to the hospital, Hmm. which is super weird, right? Well, I don't know at that time. Was it Your face is turning blue. You call somebody. It's true. He's a doctor. So they're exactly, which is why they're like, well, okay, we'll listen to him because it's her husband and he's a physician and whatever. So he puts her in the car and he actually drives her 45 minutes away to like a smaller hospital. Right. Again. Okay. And there's like a big medical center that's like 20 minutes away from where they live. But instead he drives her to this other hospital because he says he's more familiar with it or whatever. When they arrive to the hospital, Joan's blood pressure is 60 over 40. Whoa. Super low. And she has a fever and she's saying that she can't see. So she's like blind, basically. So they do all these blood cultures. They run all these tests. At first, they think that she has the flu. Then they think that she has food poisoning. Then they think she has septic shock. And then they're like, we have no freaking idea what's wrong with her. So we just are going to have to wait a couple days for these blood cultures to come back. Six hours after she arrives, her kidneys begin to fail. This hospital that she is at is so small that there are no, there's no dialysis equipment. Mm. So there's Mm. no way for them to help her basically with her kidney failure. And at this point, she was so sick that they could not transfer her to another hospital. 
So they try this other method of dialysis. Dialysis is called peritoneal dialysis, which is like they run a solution that has glucose like directly into your intestines, basically. Hmm. So like in, in an attempt to like try to clean out your blood, mm-hmm. it's much less effective. But they, that's what they had to do. And after a few hours, she appears to stabilize. Her blood pressure comes up a little bit. And so everyone leaves for the night to go home and get some sleep. So her mom and dad leave. John goes down the hall and is like sleeping on a couch in one of the rooms that they offered him to sleep in. But at 2.30 a.m., so this is March 19th, 1969, Joan suddenly goes into cardiac arrest and she cannot be resuscitated and she passes away at the hospital at the age of 38. Oh, gosh. Yes. So John Hill, her husband, immediately has her body moved to the funeral home. I don't know why. I don't know if this little hospital just didn't have a morgue or if he just didn't want her laying there or whatever, but that's what he did. So at the time in Texas, state law required that an autopsy be done for anyone who died in a hospital within 24 hours of admittance. Oh. So if you go into the hospital and you die within 24 hours of the time that you arrived, they require you to have an autopsy. So Joan had died within 15 hours of her admittance. So the medical examiner goes to the funeral home to perform the autopsy. And he gets there five hours after Joan had been pronounced dead. So like right away. And she had already been embalmed. Oh, whoa. They moved fast. Or he made them move fast. Right. Mm -hmm. So... You know, whenever they embalm you, they drain you, like drain all of the blood out of you. So like, and then they put a chemical to like preserve your body. So there's very little that they can really test because everything has been affected by a chemical. I mean, there's tissue samples that they can do, but like it's had a chemical run through it at this point. So your organs, everything is compromised, but they did an autopsy anyway. And they found no distinct cause of death except for her pancreas was like an odd maroon colored, like pancreas. It wasn't normal. It was like a wine colored pancreas. So the medical examiner's like. My pancreas would probably be wine colored. (laughs) (laughs) All internal organs. (laughs) (laughs) So the medical examiner is like, hmm, well, maybe this is pancreatitis. Possibly that's what she died from is pancreatitis. It's the only cause that I can find. So the family consults multiple doctors, all who say that her symptoms absolutely do not indicate pancreatitis. So they're like, this is not what she died from. So Ash, her daddy, went to the district attorney and asks for a second autopsy. He's like, something crazy is going on here. My daughter did not die of pancreatitis. Something has happened to her. You need to look into this. So they agree and they perform a second autopsy, like literally the day that she was buried. And the second autopsy finds that she does have hepatitis, which they say is possibly viral, but that they really can't say what her cause of death is. 
they do test her for poison and say that they rule it out. So they say she's not been poisoned. She has this weird color pancreas. It also looks like she has some kind of viral hepatitis. We don't really know what happened here. So Joan was buried and everyone was just expected to move on. But three months after she was buried, John marries his mistress, Anne Kurth. And the two of them move into a new home with her sons and Boot. Mm. So Joan's family is like, no. No. Like, we're not going to let it lie. We are going to figure out what really went down here. We think that he had something to do with this. They start accusing him of things, saying that he contributed, if not caused, her death. And, I mean, they're just convinced of it, right? So they push and they push. And finally, in April of 1970, which is just over a year after her death, they get a grand jury to agree to exhume Joan's body to do a third autopsy. So during this autopsy, a team of 10 doctors is established to look over everything, do testing, and figure out what her cause of death is. And the only thing that they find that is different than what the other autopsies find is an acute infection. Mm. So she was septic at the time that she died. So the doctor team determines that at the time of her death that she had this extremely like raging infection she was extremely septic and although it may not have been the cause of her death definitely the lack of treatment that she had contributed to her death Mm. so the fact that she laid in that room for a really long time throwing up having diarrhea like whatever and nobody helped her nobody did anything contributed to her decline and ultimately to her death. So the family keeps pushing and they're like, okay, well, that's John's fault. John did that. You know, he didn't tell anybody. He didn't help her. And because of all of the weird things surrounding her illness, surrounding her treatment, surrounding her death, the grand jury decides to indict John Hill on a charge of murder by omission. Have you ever heard of this? I have not. So this is the first time in Texas that anybody had ever been indicted with a murder of omission. I want to be very clear that this is not a murder charge. So he was not indicted on first degree murder, on intentionally murdering Joan. Murder by omission is basically saying that he had a duty to help her and didn't. And so it resulted in her death. Because he was a doctor? Well, I think because he was aware that she was sick and needed treatment, because he was also a physician and was aware of, you know, the proper treatment Mm -hmm. for certain illnesses, he had a duty to help her and chose not to. Mm -hmm. So it would be similar to like if you knew, if you were on a boat and you were a captain of a boat and you knew your boat was sinking and you didn't help the passengers and you let them die, that would be the same thing. Mm. Right. So like you have a responsibility to help someone and prevent their death and you just don't do it. So it's not a murder charge. It's murder of omission, murder by omission. Super weird. Okay. 
So his trial is set to begin in 1971, February of 1971. So by this time, John and Anne, his mistress, were divorced. Anne claims, okay, hold on to your pants, <laughs> that they were divorced because he tried to kill her. Oh, you son of a... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Son of a plastic surgeon. Okay. So he, she says that he attempted to inject her with a syringe of something while they were driving in a car. And whenever he was unable to do that, he ran their car into a bridge. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he tried to kill her essentially two times unsuccessfully why you may ask why do you mm -hmm. think john would want to kill Anne? apparently john had confessed to Anne that he had in fact killed his wife joan oh Anne says that john told her that he hold on to your pants got him cooked bacterias under a red light in his home and then injected bacteria into Joan's food, read pastries. Mm -hmm. And then once she got sick enough, injected her with bacteria and that this led to her illness and death. Oh my gosh. And so he's this trying to inject Anne too. <laughs> yeah, so that's what she thinks, that he was trying to kill her in the same way. Hmm. So this explains why nothing was found on the autopsies, except for the fact that her body just seemed to be fighting something like hepatitis or some kind of bacteria that caused her to be septic, and it ultimately led to her death. John is kind of smart. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a real gross, creepy way. So, he didn't want Anne telling other people, obviously, that he had killed his wife. And so, she is saying that he tried to kill her to keep a secret. However, Anne tells all of this in court, right? So, he's being charged with murder of omission and she tells this big story, basically, that he is actually guilty and confessed to first-degree murder. Well, that's what he's not, that's not what he's on trial for. Mm -hmm. So the judge has no choice. He can't try him for first-degree murder whenever he's on trial for murder of omission. He's not been charged with that. Oh, so he has right. to declare a mistrial. He can't say he's guilty or innocent of murder of omission when now they're like, well, he actually killed her. It's actually first degree murder. So he just basically has to say this is a mistrial. I can't rule on this. So that's what he does. And they recharge him with first degree murder. And his second trial is set for November of 1972. However... Two months before this trial in September of 1972, John, who is now married to his third wife, comes oh, home Lord. from a trip in Las Vegas and finds his mother and Boot tied up and gagged in their house. So he walks in basically in the process of robbery and a masked gunman comes out and shoots John and kills him instantly. 
too much. Daddy. Daddy did it. So, ding, ding, ding. (laughs) The gun was found discarded in the bushes near the home. So, follow this trail with me if you can. Gun is traced back to a Texan doctor. Okay? So, that's who the gun belonged to. That's who it was registered to. Texan doctor had reported the gun stolen by a prostitute. So, they found the prostitute prostitute says that she and her boyfriend, who is also her pimp, were hired by a wealthy woman to kill John Hill. Wealthy woman is an acquaintance of, guess who? Ash Robinson, (laughs) Joan's daddy. However, nobody rolls on this man. Nobody says that he has anything to do with this murder. They go to jail. The wealthy woman goes to jail. She gets like 35 years and actually dies in prison of cancer. Never tells on Ash Robinson. Never. The prostitute goes to jail. The gunman, the guy who actually shot John Hill, actually is killed during the process of his arrest. Oh. So none of these people ever say that Ash Robinson ever had anything to do with this murder. So he is never indicted. He is never convicted. He is never tried for the murder of John Hill. Later, like years later, Boot, the son, um, sues Ash for wrongful death, but they are never able to connect him at all to the murder. And Ash actually died in 1985, scot free. Huh. Well, looky here. Looky there. Looky what money can buy you in Texas. No kidding. The best part about this story is that there is a made-for-TV movie that came out in 1981 called Murder in Texas. Okay? And I watched this movie. It is three hours long. It was really long. Three hours. No wonder you were still watching it because you told me about it. I watched it. (laughs) And then you were like... I'm still watching it. Yeah, I watched it for days. But the best part is Joan is played by Farrah Fawcett. Farrah Fawcett. Um, John Hill, the husband, is played by Sam Elliott. Do you know who that is? Um, I I know the name, but I'm gonna have to like. Do you watch The Ranch? No. Mm-mm. Oh, okay. So he's the dad in the ranch. He's Ashton Kutcher's dad. Pull up a picture of him. You'll know who Sam Elliott is. Best part, Ash oh, Robinson. Yep. You know him, He right? was on Parks and Rec, too. Yes. Okay, yes. That guy. Short he's he's everywhere. Yeah, he's super mm-hmm. great. Ash Robinson, dad. Mm-hmm. He is played by Reddy. Da-da-da-da. Andy Griffith. <laughs> Andy Griffith. Okay, so picture it, if you will. We've got Farrah Fawcett on her horses, super beautiful, married to Sam Elliott, super handsome plastic surgeon. Farrah Fawcett withers away and dies. Sam Elliott's trying to get off scot-free. And then here come Andy Griffith, all Matlock style, like, nay, nay, boy. (laughs) I'm going to get you one way or the other. (laughs) 
it's worth the watch. Oh my gosh, I think I might have to. I'm like adding this to my list of things to watch. Murder in Texas. <laughs> because why not? Why and not? It will be a great three hours of your time. And oh that man. is the story of Joan Robinson Hill. Wow. That's like, um, well, it's a soap opera. I mean, funny really to is. start with your correction of the soap opera thing earlier and then end up telling a soap opera as <laughs> your story. It really is. It's a bomb story. That is a fantastic story. So and, I didn't know I'm... when I started the story about any of the stuff later where Ash, tech, I mean, we can't say that he killed John Hill, but like he mm-hmm. did. But I didn't know about any of that, and so that was just huh. a little. That was just a little dessert at the end of my meal. <laughs> right? Gosh, how was that not like the most prominent thing? But I guess because nobody wanted to roll on him, so it was like not talked about. Yeah, phenomenal. He was never tied to it whatsoever, but everybody knew. Hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Wow. Well, thank you. I appreciate that one. <laughs> You're welcome from that rad. I'm sorry. Fast that fast talking daddy Matlock style is the best. <laughs> oh, yeah. Angie oh, Griffith. man. Yes. Well, I don't want to like just like go from that to something else, but I feel like we need to just move straight Let's into these products. products. So, because, <laughs> you know. You want to get them done. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about yours or would you like me yeah, to talk about I'll mine? I'll talk about mine. Okay. I'm going to tell you guys this month about my favorite face product, which is the Tula Primer. Tula Facial Primer. Let me tell you about this. This is called Tula. T-U-L-A is the brand. And it is called Face Filter Blurring and Moisturizing Primer. So this comes in like a little blue tube. It's super, um, it's like the most lightweight. It's a primer, right? So it like primes your skin. It's a moisturizer at the same time, but it also has a little bit of tint to it. So it has coverage on your skin. And like, I'm a mom. I don't want to wear a bunch of makeup. We have masks on all the time anyway. So we don't want to put makeup on our faces. This is like literally one of the best products that I have ever used on my face. And I use it every single day. Christy uses it, I think. Don't you use this product, Christy? I was going to say, you introduced me to it. And I don't use it every single day. But I do use it. I use it every day. It's the best face product that I have in my in my like armoire. It's not yeah. the right word. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what it's called. In your closet. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I will I will concur that it is a fantastic product because fantastic. I use it and I feel like it does it evenly covers my face and it um what is it? Like I Whatever color. I, it's not the color. It, it doesn't have a color. It yes, matches your own. It comes out white. And yes. then it matches your skin tone, I feel like. Yes. That's yes. how I feel too. Because no matter what, it always it goes on smooth. And it doesn't make me look hugely different. But just I feel like everything is covered. and Yes. Yeah, you're primed, awake and primed. alive. 
Tula Face Filter Blurring and Moisturizing Primer. Go do the thing. And it's a clean product, too. So, okay. chemical free. Yeah. There you go. Well, coincidentally, because Beth introduced me to Tula Face Primer, I started going and looking for other Tula products. And my product oh. today, which was not planned, by the way, is a Tula skincare product, and it is a the Cult Classic Purifying Face Cleanser. And it is a probiotic gel-based cleanser that removes dirt, impurities, and makeup gently and effectively. And skin is left looking balanced, clarified, and prepped for skincare. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I just read that from the back. Because I don't know how else to describe this except that I don't use, I'm not a, a facial, like a skincare fanatic. I don't do it every day. I'm not like, it's part of my routine. Um, but I do use this more often than most things. And oh my gosh, my face feels so clean, like smooth. Mm -hmm. And my husband also knows when I use it because I'll get into bed and he can just like smell I was just going to say it smells delicious. That's true of the primer too. It smells good too. I have this yes. product also and I love it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, it's awesome. I use it to just cleanse my face, whether I have makeup on or not at night, you know, when I randomly choose to pick it up, but use it. I, I, I recommend you using it. Yeah. yeah. Tula. We're having a Tula party. November Tula party. Tula party. Yep. Tula. It's Tula. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I like so, it. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So, well, I guess thanks for listening. Thanks for um, considering using the products. Like we are not getting paid for this. This is just, we want to let you know things that we have found and like, so that you might add it to your collection. But, um, and happy Thanksgiving, you... everybody. Oh gosh, that's right. Happy yeah. Thanksgiving. We are thankful for you. Yes, for sure. I'm yeah. thankful for um, you, Christy. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for <laughs> everything about you. Your Aww. friendship, your podcast, my wine glass, my mug. You make it all happen <laughs> for me. Everything. Same, same. <laughs> I heart you. It's fine. I heart you. <laughs> so you guys just stick with us we appreciate the listens we appreciate the love on social media emails you find us you know where to find us if you're listening to us you know where to find us so keep reaching out we love it and just always remember that the world is scary people suck hide in your closet 